When someone believes in something, they witness to you about it. I don't know if I've ever been evangelized more about something than I have been about diffusers and essential oils. I don't know if maybe you're one of those people or not, but I'm told all the time about how great they are. Or maybe um, you have a particular brand of vehicle that you're into. And so if somebody's considering buying a, a new truck, you want to make sure that they're getting one that's built Ford Tough. Or maybe you have a preference for, for how you grill. I was, I was evangelized on this and maybe converted a little bit about how you've got to cook over wood instead of gas. Even this week, or I guess a few weeks ago, I was telling everyone uh, about how great WVU's new football coach is. Right? I'm a believer in Neil Brown. I was just uh, evangelizing Mike about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and how he needs to see it. We get excited about something. We, we tell people about it. We, we bear witness about it. It comes naturally to us. What I want to exhort you this morning to believing in and bearing witness to Jesus. My hope is is that we would talk as freely and as passionately and as excitedly about Jesus as as I do about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. That we would want people to know that God loves them and that Christ offers salvation to them. Indeed, that he is risen from the dead. That's going to be uh, the main idea of the sermon. It's the main idea of Paul's sermon here in Acts 13. It's made explicit in verses 38 and 39. Uh, I've tried to summarize it this way and say, Jesus is risen. I misspelled from. It's form, but it should be the word from. Jesus is risen from the dead and offers forgiveness to all who repent and believe. I'm going to work through the text all the way to the end of chapter 13 in Acts here. Even go verses 13 through 52. We'll see their travel log. We'll consider Paul's sermon. And then we'll watch the effects of Paul's sermon as the word spreads. Uh, let's pray and we'll get into the text. Father, we need you this morning. We come as those who are seeking to drink from the fountain of life once more. We are seeking refreshment. We are seeking your presence. We are seeking encouragement from one another and from your word. We want to be changed by your grace more and more into the image of Christ each day. We, we want a deeper experience of Christ in our lives. We ask now that you would cut away any weeds of cynicism that might be choking our spiritual arteries, that you would remove from us any thoughts that might cause us to lose our focus on you. Pray that you would use your word to bring us joy this morning. We thank you for Christ for the opportunity to gather as we do here. What a great gift. What good news this gospel is. What a glorious Savior Jesus is. Help us to worship him now as we listen to the 
the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we are working through the book of Acts still. And if if you've been here, you know at this point, we can summarize the book of Acts this way by saying, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. And as the church goes out, God brings people in. The whole book revolves around that kind of mini Great Commission in verse 8 of chapter 1, where Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And we, we see this happening as the narrative progresses. Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit, which happens in chapter 2 as the church is filled up with the Holy Spirit and they begin proclaiming the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. People begin to believe and Jerusalem begins to be filled up with Christians, filled up with Christianity. And people start to get ticked off. The religious establishment is a little upset, and persecution breaks out. And little by little, it increases and becomes a little bit more intense. Until that persecution causes the disciples to spill out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. We see that Jesus' words are being fulfilled. They've witnessed in Jerusalem, now they've witnessed in Judea and Samaria, And eventually, they they trickle out into what would be considered the ends of the earth by the time we get to the end of Acts. We're kind of at the ends of the earth part here as the church in Antioch has sent out Paul and Barnabas to minister to nations who have not yet heard the gospel. We traced some of their journey last week through Cyprus where they came to a proconsul, kind of a governor in Cyprus, and took God's word to him. And there, just like the word has been opposed throughout Acts, it was opposed once more by a magician. And yet, despite the opposition, as we've seen in Acts over and over and over again, God's word prevailed. The proconsul believed. He, he came to faith. God is, is working out his purpose. And so that's where we pick up this morning. They're still in the middle of this missionary journey and they get ready to travel to a new place. Look with me at their travel log here in verses 13 and 14. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's the edge of the island in Cyprus, and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem, you can just make a mental note of that. It's going to be the source of some controversy later because Paul looked at it as if um, John deserted them. Paul and Barnabas are going to have a a sharp disagreement later in the book over this incident. This shows you that sometimes, I think sometimes we think of first century travel like it's traveling today where we're like, oh man, it's so hard to travel internationally. I'm on a plane for, you know, Three, well, I guess that's not international, but five-ish hours, and I have to watch in-flight movies and fall asleep a little bit and have that in-flight meal, and it's just all so inconvenient, so hard. First century travel was, was rough. I mean, think about how tired you are when you travel and how tired they must have been traveling in much less pleasant conditions. Right? This is not easy. They're not just zipping from one location to the next. This takes great dedication and commitment and trust in what God has called them to do. And they have encountered a little bump. John Mark leaves. And I don't think, later on, Acts can reveal, not an easy departure. 
And yet, they commit to staying the course. It's kind of a little mini application, I think, here for us, is that when we do encounter difficulties on the road of faith, as we follow Christ, we must resolve to stay the course, especially when it's hard. And that's what they do. They, they stay the course, and they continue their journey from Perga, and they reached Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch is not the same Antioch they left from, okay? Ancient world works sometimes very similar, in a way very similar as today's world. There are multiple cities called Antioch. In the same way, on the eastern seaboard, we've got Charleston, South Carolina, and Charleston, West Virginia. There are two Antiochs. Perhaps uh, Washington might be a better example. Did you know there are 88 cities, villages, or towns in the United States called Washington? Right? And that doesn't include like Washington, D.C. and Washington State. Lots of Washingtons out there. But this is not the same place they left from. It's, it's a different place. The first Antioch they left from was in Syria, and this Antioch is in Pisidian. And at, when they arrive, or after they arrive, on the Sabbath day, they go into the synagogue and sit down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. This just makes a lot of sense when they arrive somewhere to go to the synagogue. They have a message about the Jewish Messiah coming to save not only the Jewish people, but all peoples. And so they go to the synagogue where they may have an opportunity to speak about Christ. And we see that this synagogue service follows the kind of typical pattern of synagogues, which was there'd be a reading of the law and the prophets. They would recite the Shema. Eventually, someone would be invited to speak or to share a word of encouragement or to give the sermon. Now, this is speculative, I'll tell you that, but I'm pretty confident that Paul knew this was coming, the opportunity to give a word of encouragement. I think in all likelihood, he and Barnabas visited the leaders of the synagogue leading up to their visit and had arranged for this opportunity for him to speak ahead of time. At a minimum, Paul is well known in the ancient world. He studied under that famous Rabbi Gamaliel. And so people kind of knew that Paul, in, inside of Israel anyway, people knew that Paul was a good teacher. I mean, he was a Pharisee. And so, they go, hey, we've got this great all-star teacher. He's an expert on the law. He's going to be in synagogue this week. Let's invite him to speak. And Paul is like ready to take advantage of this opportunity. He's been listening to the teaching of the scriptures. And his sermon, when we go through it, you'll notice it's very similar. It shares really similar elements to um, Stephen's sermon in chapter 7, as well as Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Paul is, is ready to tell people what he believes about Jesus. He's ready to seize this opportunity. But are you ready to seize the opportunities that God brings across you? Are you ready to share your faith with people when they come asking, what must I do to become a Christian? Or, brother, sister, do you have a word of encouragement for me? Are you able to tell others about Jesus? Paul is, Paul has prepared, and he is ready. And I think to everybody's surprise, he teaches them about Jesus, about how they as Jews need to convert to Christianity. I think the synagogue leaders got a little bit more than they signed up for here. 
Let's look at how he begins in verse 16. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior. Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now as John was completing his mission, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not the one, but one is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. We're on the front end of Paul's sermon here, and if we were to title it, we might call it the big picture or the story. Paul is communicating to Israel about, or people of Israel, about their history, and he's making a really interesting point. He's saying, your history isn't about you at all. I don't know that this song existed at the time, but he he might have sung to them a little bit like, you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. I gave him a little, don't you? No, he, he is saying, your history, Israel, is not about you. It's about your God. There are 16 times where we see God as the primary actor in Israel's history. Their history is about God. It's his story, and it's going somewhere. It's going to the cross in Christ. That's the climax of their history. And so we see God chose Israel. God made them prosper in Egypt. God delivered them out of slavery. God put up with them in the wilderness, or depending how you translate it, could be bore up like a parent takes a kid on his shoulder, carried them through the wilderness. God did that. God gave them the land. God gave them a king. God promised them a Messiah, and God has kept the promise. Paul is saying, this story, your lives are not about you. They are all about God. He's the main character in your movie, Israel. You are supporting actors. Everything else is scenery. History, this story is God's story, and it revolves around Him. This is really hard for us to hear. It might come to a shock, as a shock to some of you. The world does not revolve around you. The world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. It and we all revolve around God. He is primary. He is center. It's all about Him. I love the way N.D. Wilson 
writes. He says this, Yes, your life is a story, but you are a carpet-dwelling, dust-mite-teensy. On the scale of this stage, and number only one in the multitude of his cast, your world is tiny, yes, but God gets tinier. Not one dust might falls through the carpet fibers and into the pad apart from your father. He's big enough that small doesn't matter. Dust might drama doesn't use up his attention. When one is infinite, one can enjoy two black holes arm wrestling over a galactic snack and an uncoordinated junior high quarterback struggling to escape an overweight junior high defensive end. Infinite goes all the way up and all the way down and at every level with equal attention. He creates with the full dose of his personality. Understand this. We are both tiny and massive. We are nothing more than molded clay given breath, but we are nothing less than divine self-portraits. You see, the story of everything is about God. And even though you might be small and tiny and a supplementary character, a supporting actor, you do have a role to play. And you are valuable to the infinite God. And equally valuable. Isn't it amazing that God is big enough that for him to pay attention to your little tiny problems like, is not a big deal. He can pay attention to your problems and my problems and the world's problems all at once without exhaustion. Cares about us. You, you are valuable even though you are not central. God is central. And, and Paul is, is bringing this to our attention. He's saying, you're valuable, but this story is ultimately about God and how he's come to save you. Like In this story, you were not the hero. I think that's what we always, typically when we read the story, we're the good guy and everybody else is the bad guy. and We relate to the, the heroine, the protagonist. That's who we want to be. But in this story, we're, we're not Superman. God is. Like, like, we are a bunch of princesses locked in a tower that's guarded by a dragon. And God is the king who comes and slays the dragon and saves us. That's what Paul is saying. See, you have a sin problem. God has promised to fix it. And Jesus has shown up to do just that. He's kept his promise. Paul is saying, salvation is here. Don't miss it. Your religious leaders, they missed it as they were fulfilling scripture. God's purposes were still alive and well underneath their sinful actions. He continues. Look at what he says. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, that's Jesus, or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God 
raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. As to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, You will not let your Holy One see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus is the king you've been waiting for. He's the hero of everything. He's the protagonist of this story. Salvation has come, and your religious leaders, they missed it, and that's why they killed him. They killed Jesus because they didn't recognize he was the most glorious person who ever lived. They condemned him to die, not because they recognized guilt in him, but because they didn't recognize him. Jesus was the truly innocent one. He was born of a virgin without the stain of original sin. He was the second Adam who did everything the first Adam should have done. He didn't succumb to a single temptation. He lived his whole life without sin. He opened the eyes of the blind. He made the lame to walk. He made dead people come to life. He was glorious. He was innocent. He was perfect. And they killed him. Why? They didn't recognize him. They didn't understand their own scriptures. And God was at work. God was at work purchasing the salvation of each and every person who would trust in Christ by faith for salvation. God was offering a lamb as a sacrifice to make atonement for sin. This is why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he spoke of Jesus, Jesus is the innocent lamb who dies to take away the sin of anyone who repents of their sin and puts their trust in him. The the whole story was leading up to this big Christ event where he would die for sin and raise from the dead. Where he would go up on a tree which was to be a curse in order to take the curse that was due to your sin and my sin. The punishment that would bring us peace was put upon him. They took him down and they put him in a tomb to be forgotten. And God raised him up. Jesus is alive and well. He's seated at the right hand of God and he's feeling just fine today. That's good news. He, he rose from the dead bodily. This is not some myth or some spiritual resurrection that's just meant to give us like warm, fuzzy feelings and we just follow Jesus' example and live really good lives. Right? We should live really good lives. That's true. But this is something that happened in space and in time. Jesus has a physical body. Like you see that point, right? 
saying David was a pretty good king, but David is dead and buried. His body decayed. Yes, David's in the presence of the Lord right now, but he doesn't have a body. It decayed. Jesus is in the presence of God right now, and he has a glorified body. His body has not seen decay. It's raised up by God, and in his resurrection, we see the promise of God to us, our own resurrection, our own freedom from sin, our own freedom from death, our own freedom from the law and from guilt and from shame. Jesus is the first fruits, the harvest of all those who have faith. 1 Corinthians 15 reiterates this. It tells us this in verses 20 through 22. As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul holds out this promise. He's saying Christ has come. He gives us that therefore in verse 38. Therefore let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. You can have Forgiveness of sins. Who? Verse 39. Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. That's incredible. You can be justified. Justification is legal language. And what Paul is saying is when you put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And the verdict on you goes from being you are guilty to being you are righteous. Justification is incredible. And it's, it's not just as if I never sinned. It's just as if I never sinned and I did everything absolutely right. That's what it means to be justified. This is what Christ has done for us. For all who put their faith in him. This is, is really good news. We're justified only by faith. It's by faith alone, not by participation in sacraments, not by a stellar church attendance record, not by good works or good behaviors. It's, it's by faith alone. Right, Paul tells us elsewhere, by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This faith that justifies and credits Christ's righteousness to our account. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does it, you won't see this as incredible until you understand how sinful you are. How much you, you really do need a Savior. And that, that's been all of us. We have all gone our way instead of God's way. We have all acted, what is our catechism question, right? We've all had an attitude or a desire or action that explicitly breaks a commandment of Scripture or came and comes from a heart of unbelief that wasn't done to the glory of God. We have all done things 
that do not proceed from faith. That which does not proceed from faith is sin. We have all rebelled against our holy king. We have all deserved death. And we discover here that we can be justified from that death that we have earned by faith in Christ. What a wondrous gift. And what a relief. I don't know about you, but if you kind of have this mindset of, you know, maybe I can make myself right with God or earn heaven or salvation if I just live a really good life. That's exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> the good news of the gospel is that when I put my faith in Christ, I can, I can stop trying to be so impressive. Right? Because God knows who I am and he loves me. Love me enough to die for me. Like I don't have to, I don't have to put makeup on this ugly mug. Right? I'm known and loved because God is gracious and good. Man, that's free. And like it only gets better. Saved from death, eternal life forever with God, where there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Adopted into his family. Like in this, this story that God has written is going to keep getting better. Right? The God who imagined stars and starfish and whales and beetles and dogs and cats and fish and cows and trees and grass and water and spiders and those, those bugs that like make the little dirt house that they live in, like all this incredible stuff, he's not all of a sudden going to stop being creative. I've got this wonderful feeling that on the other side of Christ's return, God is going to do some of his best creative writing. His story is one that is a thrill to be a part of. It's a story that's written for his glory and when our faith is in him, also for our good, for our enjoyment. God is about you and me. He loves us. He's gone to the cross to purchase us. Paul shares this. He, he lets the people know that they can have peace with God through faith in Christ. And then he gives them a warning in verse 40. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I'm doing a work in your days a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. This is from Habakkuk, an oracle of judgment. For some reason, I feel like this is one of those verses that we sometimes take out of context and then pray like, Lord, do something in our day that people won't believe even if it was told to them. And there's like a positive way you can pray that, yes. Like, like God would do something incredible among us. I get it. And that's how I, I always looked at that verse in Habakkuk. But it's actually, it's judgment is coming here. Like, God is going to judge his people so severely, so harshly, it's going to be unbelievable. He's going to utilize Babylon, one of their enemies, to crush them because of their sin. They aren't going to understand that this is indeed divine judgment, divine punishment. And what Paul's simply saying is, 
don't repeat the folly of your forefathers. Understand that God has been at work in Christ. And believe. Because to reject God's revelation is to embrace destruction or disaster. He's saying, do not refuse Christ. And there's kind of a pattern for this, right? If you look at Stephen's sermon in chapter 7, he makes a similar warning. It's not as kind as Paul's. Right before he's killed, he says in verse 51, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Paul is saying, don't repeat their mistakes. See that this is the work of God and believe. Don't scoff. We see how the people respond in verses uh, 42 through 52 here. And indeed, there is a joyful receiving of the word as well as a jealous scoffing at the word. Verse 42, as they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. I love that. Like they didn't get enough preaching on Sunday and say like, please, please come back. Did you leave here like that? Like, man, I can't wait. I need some more preaching. We just preach another hour. We, man, we want the word. Please, please come back next week. Preach us the word. We can't wait to get back in here. I hope that's our attitude. I hope that would become our attitude, that we'd be hungry and thirsty for the Word of God. This is such a great privilege. Last week when we didn't have church, that you were just like pining away a little bit, like, yeah, this is great to have my pajamas on and my feet up, getting ready for, if you're like me, some football games in the afternoon. But there was that part of you that's going, I really, I feel like an empty glass that needs filled up feel like somebody that's been underwater holding their breath and I just need some oxygen. I, I, I need that gathering. I, I need God's word. I need fellowship with God's people. That's, that's how they feel. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking with them and encouraging them to continue in the grace of God. They're, they're encouraging, keep following Christ. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And so we see that the Jewish religious leaders are really upset now, there, there are some Jewish people that are there that believe and they follow Christ. And there still are plenty of Jewish people that believe the gospel and follow Jesus. But generally, we see a rejection of the gospel. 
This is just what God said would happen. It's what this bit from Isaiah is about. That indeed, the light will go to the Gentiles. And it does. And that's actually spoken of Christ in particular. That this salvation will come to the end of the earth. And it's really kind of neat what Paul is doing. He's just saying, we participate in the work of Christ. We participate in bringing light to the ends of the earth by witnessing to who Jesus is. It really is a great privilege. And it leads many to rejoice and delight in God's word. And yet those who are jealous, they, they miss it. They reject it. I think when you do bear witness, and you should, you are going to be met with similar reactions. There will be those who receive the word with joy. And there will be those who reject it and reject you, just as Jesus was rejected. You need to be prepared for both reactions. You need to be prepared to meet rejection with bravery and joy. That's what Paul and Barnabas do here. Verse 50, But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. Uh, shaking the dust off your feet was kind of like, just as an insult, like let judgment be on you. You've rejected the true God. You're following false gods. You're, you're dirty. You're unclean kind of a thing. Symbolic of their rejecting the gospel. Verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I love how counterintuitive things happen uh, in the Bible. You would think rejected, expelled from the city, downtrodden and crestfallen, but that's not what we find. We find that they are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I just think this weird thing happens when we identify with Jesus to the extent that we are being persecuted or rejected or ridiculed, we get a stronger sense of God's presence. We get to to learn what it is to be scorned and rejected for the benefit of others. And when we are rejected, I think we, should, we do well to act like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. That we, when we are persecuted or rejected or ridiculed, would endure that with the joy of the cross set before us. The joy of the new heavens and the new earth set before us. The joy of the promises of God made to us set before us. Christians are not to be woe is me people. We're not. We have, we have more than anyone else in the world. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have everything before us on the other side of the grave. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yes, there are times where we will weep, but there is a sweet joy of being in Christ that allows us to endure even suffering with a smile because we know that God is working for his glory and for our good. We know that this is his story 
and that He's written us in. That's awesome. That should give you a freedom and a fearlessness that is unrivaled. Because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You're following Jesus. Yes, there will be things that are kind of scary. There will be rejections that come. But there will be nothing that can take away your joy because it's in Christ. That is an unassailable joy. A joy purchased for you by his blood. One that cannot be returned. And so, I encourage you to believe in and bear witness to history's main character, to history's author, God himself, who has written himself in so that we might be adopted into his family. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace without which we are all lost and hopeless. Lord, without your grace and kindness, we would be content to lie dead in our sins. But because of your grace and your kindness and your steadfast love, you have called us to life. You have made us alive in Jesus. This is what it is to truly live. This is what it is to have abundant life, to know you the one true God, the one we were created for. Thank you for this wonderful blessing. Thank you for our salvation. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.